Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, yesterday's budget addressed Canada's economic recovery from COVID-19, as well as an increased spending on defense, housing, health care, and child care. What are the highlights? Well, we'll talk about them. The Canadian Chamber of Commerce says the federal budget was a mixed bag. President and CEO Perrin Beattie will join us to talk about that. And the UN has voted Russia out of its Human Rights Council over the war crimes in Ukraine. Are there going to be punitive measures involved? It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's get right back into the, the big story from yesterday. And of course, that was the federal budget. As Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken tells us, the budget was actually quite modest. When you put all these measures together, it only means an extra net new spending of just $7 billion, just $7 billion, and that's on a budget of $450 billion, so not much more red ink. The deficit this year is going to be about 2% of GDP, and the deficit is going to shrink to less than half a percent of GDP, almost balanced by 2027. So that's the uh, the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, there are winners and losers in this, and people, well, depending on who you talk to, can give your, uh, their opinions on exactly what happened. Everybody wants a piece of the pie, I guess, when it comes to budget time. To try to help us sift through this, please to welcome back to the program John Best, who is the founder and publisher of the Bay Observer. John, uh, good to have you on the program. I hope you're doing well these days. Doing fine, Bill. Nice to be with you. Well, it's a busy day today, and it's, it's always uh, tough when you get into the analysis of a budget situation like this, because uh, there's so many different people that, uh, that have a vested interest in this. Uh, uh, the opposition party, well, the one anyway, the Conservative Party, are very much against that. No shock there. The NDP said there's a lot of stuff in there that they like, uh, but they're going to support this, notwithstanding some of the concerns that they have. Uh, how would you rate what uh, Mi- Minister Freeland presented yesterday? Well, I'm... You know, I'm I'm a, a newsman. I'm not really an economist, but uh, the, the thing that jumped off the page to me, quite frankly, was was seeing that deficit. I never thought we'd we'd reach a point where we're saying, "Wow, it's only 114 billion dollars," but compared to the deficit that we ran in that terrible year of uh, of the pandemic, it, it certainly looks good to see uh, the, the deficit moving back and. And more importantly, by 2027, it's it's almost wiped out. So if they stick to that, um, you know, and there's a lot going to happen between now and then, including an election. But but certainly uh, seeing the uh, the deficit moving down uh, uh, amid uh, all the spending that they have announced, I think is a is a pretty good balancing act. And you know, I, t- I talked to some people that that were in Ottawa. And they they suggested that Christia Freeland, given her own head on these things, uh, would would tend to be a sensible uh, finance minister. And, you know, we're seeing some evidence of that. Well, and some of the stuff that the NDP threw at the table, which actually were things that the Liberals have been talking about and really haven't implemented. Uh, one was the dental care program and, and extended pharmacare. And, of course, everybody now wants to use affordable housing as, as one of their planks. But and, and you're right, it would have cost God knows how much money to say, okay, we're going to do all this stuff. But they also announced, of course, some 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 funding sources, some revenue sources, and that's tax, uh, the, the tax that they're instilling on, well, the financial institutions, essentially. There's been a lot of pushback on that as to whether or not it's an effective tool. But they actually, uh, you know, the, the folks at the bank need to understand, I guess this is actually not as severe as they thought. I think the Liberals were talking about a 25% surtax, and it's down to 15 now. It's going to bring in four billion dollars in a in a four hundred billion dollar budget. So it's one percent. Um, they'll they'll learn to live with it, I think. 
Yeah, and it's on the you know the it's almost like the first hundred is tax free, so it's on the excess of a hundred million, uh, which is not really going to nobody's going to be closing their doors now and say we just can't operate anymore. No, uh, it's it's a it's a beginning, uh, I suppose, uh, but uh, you know it, it's it's certainly not. Uh, any, first of all, it's it's only about half of what they were promising during the election, uh, in terms of the amount of money that it will raise. And, uh, you know, secondly, it's uh, it represents such a small portion of the total budget that uh, it, it, you know, it's a gesture, frankly. Uh, but it's, you know, I think people want to see uh, people that are, you know, getting these huge profits, uh, paying some element of a share of it. So it's it's a start. It, it's kind of, you know, you look at I mean, all these budgets, when you look at them, it's it's just sprinkling a little here, a little there. Um, you know, on the defense side, they, they've hardly, even with what's going on in the Ukraine, and I think people expected we were going to see a massive hike in, in the defense spending, but we end up with something that's pretty modest. So it's, uh, I, I think these budgets are getting tougher to do all the time. I, I laughed, though, uh, listening to the radio this morning, uh, the media trying to make some kind of uh, suspense out of whether or not Jagmeet Singh was going to support the budget or not. Um, you know, that seemed that seemed kind of ridiculous to suggest that there was even an iota of a question of whether he'd support the budget. Well, at, you know, when I had him on the program a week or so ago and we were talking, I asked him specifically about the finance for the, the military. And he uh, he says, no, I'm not against it. He says, I just don't think we should be, you know, gaming for the 2%. He says, that's an arbitrary number. But it is a commitment that the Canadian government had made. And they kind of couched the announcement, didn't they? They said a lot of it's going to be on equipment and upgrading existing equipment and improving NORAD, which is really not a bad idea given what's going on in the Arctic these days and the fact that the Russians seem to be in a, uh, you know, takeover mode these days. And you, you know, we, we need to do that. But you're right, they're nowhere near the 2% right now. As a matter of fact, even the 1.5 is not going to happen next year. That's going to be over a period of years. So it's going to be slow growth. And uh, I I probably think they're going to take some heat for that. Well, uh, we'll have to see how long the the Ukraine crisis uh, lasts. But uh, certainly, uh, we're we're experiencing all kinds of pain right now, including inflation that is uh, really starting to ramp up, especially in areas like food. Uh, I was talking to people yesterday who had uh, been grocery shopping and uh, just in the last day or two talking about huge increases in in products. It's, you know, they say food has gone up 13%, but it seems like it's gone up a lot more than that uh, for specific items. But, you know, I I don't think uh, you're going to see uh, Canada reaching 2% of its GDP. Uh, on defense, uh, we're, we're nowhere near it, and we're not even, you know, sort of on that uh, trajectory from what I can see. I think, uh, you know, I suppose the good news, I mean, 2% of our GDP is a is a heck of a lot different than 2% of, uh, you know, a country that's not as doing as well as Canada financially. So, th- th- you know, there, there still could be significant increases, even though we don't hit the 2%. Affordability was the big key, and, and one of the uh, pundits, I guess, got pretty much dubbed before she even started speaking, this was going to be the housing budget. Uh, January report from the Bank of Nova Scotia found that of the G7 countries, Canada has the lowest supply of homes on a population-adjusted basis. 
especially in Alberta, Manitoba, and guess what? Yes, Ontario. So that was that was going to be a major part of this. There's been a lot of feedback about what they have offered here: some incentive programs, some tax-free savings programs, uh, which which I guess attends or attempts rather, John, to address the problem of affordability. But have they done a whole lot about about supply here? Because what I hear from everyone is it's that just there aren't enough homes, and and uh, there's bidding wars going on, and that's that's the stumbling block right now. Well, uh, the accelerator program uh, that they announced is is uh, $4 billion over five years. So that's $800 million a year. If it was, if it was going directly to, to just simply housing, uh, in a city like Hamilton where the average house price is, now they tell us a, a million dollars, that would get you 800 houses. The, the money is not going to be directly spent on houses. It's going to go to a whole bunch of things. And actually, I was talking to Chad Collins yesterday, who's on a committee that is, that is going to figure out They've got the number. It's it's uh, the four billion. Now they're going to figure out how to spend it. But some of it, to be honest, is going to go to things like there's a lot of smaller municipalities in Canada that don't have electronic filing for um, uh, for building permits. Uh, Hamilton does, but there's a lot of communities that don't. So some of the money is going to go towards speeding up the ability of municipalities to approve housing projects. And, you know, I think a lot of people would look at that and kind of askance, but, um, and, and it'll go to other aspects of housing, but uh, it's $800 million a year and it's going to be sprinkled over several projects. That's, that's the reality of it. So is it a game changer? Probably not, but it, it's a help. Uh, back to the tax-free housing down payment plan, it's capped at $40,000. So 15 years ago, if you had $40,000, you could make a down payment on a decent house. But $40,000 doesn't even get you through the door now. So, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, again, it, it helps a bit. But uh, any any young couple that's buying a house now are probably relying heavily on equity that their parents have. But that's the problem. I mean, even if this program works, I, I think it's a, in, in theory it makes all kinds of sense to do this. But, you know, if, if all of a sudden, you know, okay, these people accrue their $40,000 and say, okay, we, we want to hit the market. Uh, if there isn't an increase in supply, then the, there's going to be bidding wars on the existing properties, which is going to drive prices up even higher. Now, th- and what, they, what the minister didn't say yesterday, and I think it's going to be a key part of this discussion, the private sector is going to have to be part of this. And they didn't talk about that. I mean, how do you incentivize people to start building these things? And, and where are we going to build them? And that's a local decision. That's nothing the federal government can do anything about. Well, I, I posted a story yesterday. There was a long debate, about an hour and a half debate at Hamilton City Council uh, about the, the whole issue of um, building affordable housing along the LRT route. And that, coupled with uh, some uh, questions I sent to the two senior governments earlier in the year, uh, there is no coordination. Uh, in, in this budget, there's talk of coordination uh, between the three levels. Uh, the province uh, needs to be part of this as well. But it, it's, it's quite clear that, uh, you know, when Catherine McKenna came to announce the, the LRT funding, and she was very solemn saying, you know, there's going to be uh, conditions and one of them is going to be affordable housing. When she said that, th- there was nothing going on. There was there. And in the ensuing year, there has been no discussion whatsoever 
about affordable housing along the LRT route. So th there's a lot of work to be done, just, just getting everybody's act together. Uh, and uh, I, my sense is that that's probably going to have to start at the municipal level, uh, creating pressure upward uh, to the uh, uh, two senior governments to try to get some kind of uh, coordinated activity, which will involve spending money, it'll involve changing the, the planning process. And a lot of people aren't going to like uh, the changes to the planning process because they typically are going to involve a whole lot of tall buildings all over this city. Yeah, and that's going to be a key element to this. And it's a key element of the debate route. You know, not everybody wants to live in a high rise. Not everybody wants to live in the inner city. Uh, the people are going to have to make some pretty tough choices here. It's not really going to be the way it was in the past. Uh, and simply affordability is going to be a key thing. But th there's got to be some coordination between the provinces and the municipal governments. I, I still think part of the, the, the blockage here is, is at the municipal level. And it's all well and good to say, okay, we're going to digitize this, et cetera, and we're going to uh, give them the, a chance to update their records. But ultimately, it's, it's town councils and city councils that are going to make decisions as to where this is going to go and how long it's going to go or whether or not there's going to be uh, everybody chasing down to the tribunal right now because they can't agree on anything. Well, and uh, that, that is a problem um, at the municipal level. Uh, the municipal politician bears the brunt of the anger. Um, they, uh, we, we do criticize them for sometimes deliberately not moving on something, knowing that it's going to go to the tribunal and knowing that it's going to get uh, uh, settled in favor of, of development. A prime example of that is the urban boundary here in, yeah. in, in Hamilton. Uh, several uh, councillors have, have told uh, people that they knew full well that the freezing of the urban boundary was, was probably going to get overturned at the provincial level. And the minister, Steve Clark, and uh, there was a letter to the editor today about Donna Skelly, who, who kind of raised it in a friendly question with Clark, um, where he said that definitely what Hamilton has decided about freezing the boundary is going to go to the tribunal. And uh, so far, the tribunal has not disappointed the government too often. Well, it's going to be an interesting debate. i got 30 seconds left. i just got to ask you, most people that are, are listening uh, and were watching the budget, if in fact they did, don't much care about you know debt to GDP ratios or even the big numbers about deficits and and you know this sort of thing. How is it impacting me? I know what is my family better off? Uh, you know, am I? I'm, there's the dental care program. There's this incentive now, so young families can get started. Did, did they check that box off? I didn't see a lot of those kind of goodies. Uh, it's not like it was at the beginning of the pandemic where people were getting money that didn't even need it. Um, there, there's, I didn't see a ton of that, Bill. It, it, uh, again, uh, going back to Freeland, uh, even though she's part of a government that's pretty much indistinguishable from an NDP government, uh, there, there seemed to be a, a little bit of restraint on, on her part. And uh, that, that I found that uh, quite interesting. I think the dental program is probably the only sort of, you know, really outstanding kind of uh, social program that, that was introduced. And, uh, you know, and of course, uh, Jagmeet Singh is uh, taking credit for that. And I suspect that some of that was negotiated before he made the demand. But yeah, there you go. Um, I, I thought, you know, to take to take us from a three hundred million dollar deficit to one hundred and forty with uh, now the, the graph looks good. Let's see what happens. But to take it down to almost nothing in by 2027, uh, it looks good.
John Best from the Bay Observer. John, as always, thanks so much for the analysis. Uh, take care. We'll talk again soon. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Day after the uh, federal budget and a lot of response, a lot of reaction to this and a lot of analysis on the budget. And uh, we'll hear from our next guest in that, about that in just a couple of seconds. But as uh, Global's uh, Abigail Beeman reports, the military aspect of it was going to play a major role in it. It seemed to as that, this budget rolled on, especially when we talk about the amount of money that was going to be involved in that. Uh, here's uh, Abigail with her report. The headline, $8 billion in new defense funding over five years, but the details are extremely blurry. $6.1 billion comes with a major focus on North American defense and modernizing NORAD, a pledge to continue with NATO commitments in Europe, and a major defense policy review to determine what Canada's military needs to be able to do in a changing world. Might be enough money to have done one or one of those three things, but it's definitely not a money, enough money to adequately address all three of those items. A senior government source says the lack of clarity is because more work needs to be done with allies and Canada doesn't want all its cards on the table. Interesting twist on that. Uh, thanks so much, Abigail. Uh, to, our next guest has something to say about that. He is, of course, Perrin Beatty, who is the president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Perrin, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for coming on today. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Listen, I want to talk about some of the stuff that you were looking for and, and your analysis on, on some of the key measures here that uh, were talked about in the budget. Uh, but I do want to just pivot, if I could, for a second uh, to Abigail's report about defense spending, because uh, as many of our listeners, I'm sure, know, uh, in your previous political life, uh, you were a defense minister at one point, And so you know what of you speak when it comes to 1.5 as opposed to 2 percent of GDP, et cetera. Uh, Give me a read, if you if you could, uh, Perrin, about where we are now and, and should we be spending as much money as, as, for instance, NATO is suggesting we spend? The commitment that we have to NATO is to, to dedicate 2% of GDP. We've never hit that target. Certainly the invasion of Ukraine by the Russians is a, is a wake-up call for any of Russia's neighbors, and we're one of them, uh, particularly when you look at the Arctic and when you look at, at the general geopolitical stability in the world. There's more that we need to be doing to enhance uh, Canada's capacities in our armed forces. So what you saw in the budget was a first step. It was a down payment, if you like, but it still leaves us far below the, the commitment to NATO. And one of the things we need to do is to, to look at how, they, how the, the world has changed since the invasion of Ukraine. And it's changed in a number of different ways. The first is that it's made us aware of the fact that that this is not a benign environment in which we're operating, that in fact we're, we're dealing with a, with a nuclear-armed, highly aggressive uh, country that is very expansionist and is prepared to use military force to achieve its goals. Secondly, we've seen a tremendous disruption in the global economy. We've seen it with supply chains, for example, where we're reliant on, on Russia for specific minerals. Uh, we'll see it in food because of the reductions in terms of, for example, being shipped from Ukraine. And we'll see it in, in uh, energy prices as well. We've already felt the impact of that. One of the things that Canada can and should be doing, in my view, is to engage with the other democracies to ask, to ask the question of what can we do working together to enhance global security and to enhance the position of the democracies. Part of that is defense spending and, and doing everybody carrying their fair share of the burden. But another part is uh, ensuring that, that, that we use 
Canadian capacities to fill some of that gap. For example, Russia's the world's greatest potash producer, Canada's number two. Uh, we can fill some of that gap, uh, and potash is critical for agricultural production around the world. Wheat and other foodstuffs, uh, our agri-food sector can fill some of that gap. And of course, in terms of energy and, and oil and gas, Canada can play a critical role if we make a commitment to get our energy to tidewater. Sorry, that's a long answer to a short no, It's but, It's a but, complicated situation. We know that. And I'm glad you brought up the idea of mineral resources in the Arctic because it's, uh, I, I don't want to say, it's not an imminent problem, I hope anyway, but uh, the Russians have been sniffing around there for the last little while. And if, if Putin is in an expansionist mode, I mean, we have to be cognizant of that. We don't want to be reactive to that, do we? We don't. And what's critical for us is, you know, the old saying about sovereignty, you use it or you lose it. And the fact is that we don't have the presence in the Canadian Arctic that we need to have today. And we know that the Russians, both in terms of their military and in terms of, of uh, their civil uses, for example, for transportation in the Arctic, are increasing their presence there. And it means that Canada has to have a presence. Even China has an Arctic strategy. And they're well away from there, obviously. I thank you for the insight into that. I know it's, it's kind of uh, off topic a little bit, but uh, I, on the other hand, I know everything is, is is at some point connected. But I mean, with your expertise in the field, I was very interested to see what you were going to feel about well, and, uh, what happened no with the defense minister. There's no doubt that the invasion of Ukraine is causing a reset in the global economy as well. Uh, it's driving up inflation in Canada. We're seeing the increase the increased price of oil and gas. Uh, it's had an impact on government revenues in a positive sense because as Ironically, as uh, businesses and as consumers are feeling the pain of inflation, the, uh, the government benefits from that and their tax revenues go up. So there's no question that, that uh, the invasion is causing a reset that all of us have to adjust to. As we've come through the last two years of the pandemic, and there's, I think, a very strong argument to be made, Perrin, that we're not out of it yet, but businesses, I think, were looking to this budget and to this federal government for some recovery support. Uh, you know, a lot of them have gone deeply into debt as a result of what's happened. You and I have talked about that in the past. Uh, I didn't hear a whole lot that was going to be helpful to small businesses. There is some. For example, the, the small business tax, the, the threshold for that is being raised, and that's uh, that's positive, so that that'll be that'll be helpful. What we didn't see was relief for the debt load that has been incurred by small businesses over the course of the recession, and many of them are struggling now to to pay that accumulated debt. We would have liked to have seen something there, and more importantly, even than that, we would have liked to have seen a, a very coherent, well articulated strategy for growth. Um, where do we go from here? How do we ensure that that we achieve levels of growth that we weren't achieving prior to the pandemic that is sustained, that is at the private sector level, and that's driven by investment. And that strategy, unfortunately, wasn't there. Is there an expectation that that they are going to address this at some point in the future? I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's essential. I mean, and the debt is, is, I think, the key part of this right now. We've talked in the past about debt forgiveness. I don't know if that's on the table as far as the feds or, for that matter, the provincial governments are concerned. But some of the small businesses I've talked to over the last year and a half especially just wonder if they can ever crawl out of the hole. Well, and that's, that's a concern that we're hearing increasingly, um, in addition to the problem they're having getting the, uh, the staff that they need. There are a million jobs going begging in Canada. 
And what we're seeing in some instances is businesses, restaurants, for example, some of them having to close because they can't get the staff that they need. Some of the highlights, some of the things that, that you heard yesterday that you thought were going to be supportive of this economic recovery. Well, there were certainly elements that were that were positive there. Um, for example, uh, I mentioned earlier the, the gradual phase-out of the small business tax rate that's moving it up from $15 million to $50 million. Investments in the critical minerals industry to support the full development of supply chains. That's positive. Um, this is an opportunity for Canada. Various measures that they're looking at to support the net zero transition. Uh, that includes a tax credit for carbon capture, utilization and storage, uh, incentives for uh, zero emission vehicles and investment tax credits for net zero technologies. That's positive. Um, there, there's funding towards one thing that, that, that is encouraging funding towards a trusted employer program for temporary foreign workers that will provide some assistance in dealing with the labor shortages that, that so many businesses are facing today. So there are certainly elements there that are, uh, that are positive, and uh, those should be recognized. The problem is that we haven't seen that, that, that focus that we need to see on, on achieving uh, growth and closing the gap with our competitors. How do you address, uh, for instance, security on, on things like supply chain and things of this nature? I know there's a, a concern about cybersecurity, too, and the impact that that could have on, on the Canadian economy. And there, there seem to be some indications that that's starting to ramp up, too. Uh, is there a federal government responsibility there? Absolutely, there is. And what we've seen during the pandemic is a significant increase in terms of cybersecurity attacks. Um, so that, that we have been pressing the government to really make a priority of, first of all, assisting businesses to get their standards up to, to world class, but secondly, to have Canada be a leader in terms of developing new technologies uh, to promote cybersecurity in a scenario where we really can lead. So that needs to be a priority, and it needs particularly to be a priority now with the conflict with, with Russia, uh, because Russia is well known as a source of, of malicious software and of cybersecurity attacks. Um, then more broadly with regard to supply chains, large part of the problem is outside of Canada and can't be solved by Canada acting alone, but there are also measures that we can take within Canada, such as improving our, our domestic infrastructure that will enable us to improve, to, to improve supply chains in, in Canada as well. The government has been serious in terms of reaching out to business and consulting with business, but we may, we need to make an even greater priority. Otherwise, we're going to be finding that, that we are affecting our competitiveness and that we're building uh, inflationary pressures into the economy. I don't want to read too much into it, but you said just reaching out. Should the business community not have a seat at the table permanently when these discussions are happening? I mean, these are these are you know, dire circumstances, we need to, I think, you know, make sure that everybody's voice is going to be heard. Yep, absolutely. And and that, you know, again, taking it up to the 5,000-foot level, what, what we were looking for in the budget was a clear signal that the government sees business as a partner and not as the problem. Uh, too often, whether it's on climate change or in other areas, you get anti-business rhetoric and uh, it's we're doing this in spite of business or we're ordering business to do something. You saw some of that with the tax increases on financial institutions uh, that were announced in the budget. 
And we heard some of that rhetoric when the government announced its, uh, the elements of its uh, climate change strategy a couple of weeks ago. Um, that's very unhelpful. Uh, we're, we are all in this together, and the government will only succeed in achieving its goals if it treats business as a partner. Well, and, and you touched a raw nerve, I guess, with an awful lot of people, myself included, because you know, there are some, uh, even Mr. Singh, of course, Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader, he just seemed to think, you know, being rich is a bad thing. You know, they're the bad guys. They're the ones that are causing all the problems. And that's certainly not true. Uh, those are the entrepreneurs that are growing businesses right now. And they've, they've got to, they're part of the solution, not part of the problem. Absolutely. And, you know, I think we have it to drop off. Oh, we'll try to hook up with uh, Perrin Beatty in just a se- couple of seconds. Some technical glitches this morning, and unfortunately it does happen from time to time. Uh, important decisions, though, about uh, about what's going on in the budget. And, uh, and I think he made a very valid point about having business at the table, uh, not just in a consultative role from time to time and saying, hey, what do you think about this? We've already implemented this. Everybody's got to be there. All the stakeholders have to be around the table uh, to plan a strategy for uh, what's going to happen going forward here. Uh, to try to get our economy back on their feet. It, uh, it's it's a complex issue, uh, and there is no one solution to this. And uh, do we have Perrin back? Hi. Oh, okay, go ahead. Sorry, I'm not sure how far I got by the time that we were disconnected there, but, but the, the, the bottom line is that, that investors will go where they're wanted. If the message that we send is that we want to punish businesses that are successful and that we see business as part of the problem, They'll simply go somewhere else. They won't put out a press release saying they're not coming to Canada. They'll simply make the decision to go somewhere else. And as we've seen in the past, sometimes businesses that are already here may decide that they want to relocate too. It's a, it's a, a factor that I think the government needs to be aware of. And don't, don't be driven by ideology. Be A little pragmatism, I think, is what we need here. Uh, Perrin, exactly. I thank you as always. I, and I really do appreciate your, your input and your perspective on this today. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All the Take best. care. Perrin Beatty, who is the president and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. And uh, good to get his insight about defense spending, too. As I say, in a past government, uh, the Mulroney government slash uh, Kim Campbell government, uh, he was the uh, the Minister of Defense. Uh, so he knows what of he speaks when it comes to uh, defense budgets. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the United Nations General Assembly has voted to suspend Russia from the UN's Human Rights Council. Uh, The vote was fueled by allegations that Russian soldiers engaged in war crimes and human rights violations in Ukraine. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, says the vote to suspend Russia was a significant step. This is an important and historic moment. Countries from around the globe have voted to suspend Russia from the U.N. Human Rights Council for its gross and systematic violations of human rights. We have collectively sent a strong message that the suffering of victims and survivors will not be ignored. Well, uh, a lot of people wondering about the ramifications. Uh, it's worthy of note, by the way, that just after we, uh, the UN voted that way, Russia said they were uh, withdrawing from uh, the, the committee, uh, which I, I guess is a little, uh, you know, putting the cart before the horse. You can't, you know, quit after you've been fired, but be that as it might. I want to bring uh, Professor Oral Brown into the conversation. Uh, Professor Brown is a professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Professor, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thank you. What is the significance of this? Is this a slap on the rest of the Russians or are they going to be offended by this? Well, we can see the Russian reaction range from the absurd, as you pointed out, the quitting after being fired, so to speak, to the perverse. 
that a day later they sent uh, rockets and artillery shells against a railway station in uh, the eastern part of Ukraine where they knew vast numbers of people were trying to evacuate. They killed something like 50 people, injured over 100. So they hardly have been deterred by this action. And it really raises questions about the United Nations itself. And I think we really also, therefore, have to go back to the big picture as to what happened. Because, yes, you did have a vote in the General Assembly, something like 93 in favor, 24 against, 58 abstention. Um, and Russia then said they were withdrawing. <laughs> but they said uh, that they will continue to fulfill their international obligations on human rights. Continue. This is the country that invaded the Ukraine in uh, 2014, Georgia in 2008, had committed horrific atrocities uh, in Syria, and of course, uh, 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 enormous repression at home. Yeah, the, well, the, the, the message here, but the message is, has been consistent. And, and to your you know point about the, uh, the attack at the train station and the tragedy that occurred there, of course, they've denied that. And I don't know who they're blaming for that now. Invariably, I know they did say one time it was Ukrainian soldiers killing Ukrainians. Uh, is that message resonating with, with the people back in Russia? It is resonating with people back in Russia because Vladimir Putin has been uh, using propaganda indoctrination for many years. He has controlled the uh, television medium which is how most people in Russia get their information. He has played on the worst instincts of the people of Russia, who are a very generous people, a warm individuals, uh, but uh, they have uh, historically feared foreign uh, invasions and foreign interference. So what, what Vladimir Putin has done is to portray Ukraine as an artificial construct aimed uh, by the West at destroying Russia, they have accused the Ukrainian government of trying to get biological weapons and nuclear weapons. So therefore, um, Russia would be under threat of uh, biological and nuclear attack and they had no choice but to defend themselves. So far from uh, engaging in an offensive action, this is meant to be a defensive step to save the lives and the well-being of Russia. It's very, very bizarre, but it is the theory of the big lie. And it is so big that people tend to uh, believe that it could not possibly be entirely false because how could their own government lie this badly to them? But eventually, it may percolate into the uh, population beyond the young uh, and savvy, those who are technically savvy, who are getting the facts. And certainly the military and uh, the security services know the facts. This is why it is so essential that Ukraine should prevail on the ground, that uh, the West enables Ukraine to effectively uh, defend themselves. But here with the United Nations, we really have a larger problem, and we have to recognize that, the, the failure of the United Nations. The United Nations has become a huge, bloated, extremely expensive organization that uh, uh, has a vast numbers of highly paid bureaucrats, and it has lost its central mission. I mean, let's not forget that the central mission, the core mission of the United Nations is peace and security. It's meant to be a collective security organization to prevent or to suffocate aggression. The very first chapter, uh, Article 1, 
in Article 2 of the United Nations refers to this, the preservation of peace and security. And it has failed in that. And in a way, the United Nations is being tested the way the League of Nations was tested in 1935 when Mussolini engaged in aggression against Abyssinia, uh, which was the name back then for Ethiopia, and the inability of the League of Nations to deal with that aggression, to stop Mussolini in 1935, ultimately doomed the League of Nations. And one cannot help but wonder if irreparable damage is not being done to the United Nations. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I know for those that thought, well, they're finally getting tough with Russia. As you mentioned, there was what, 58 abstentions, uh, so maybe not so much. Uh, Professor, our time is tight. Thank you so much. Um, I'm sure there's more to come on this in the weeks ahead and the days ahead, too. I really do appreciate your input into this today. Thank you. Professor Oral Brown from uh, Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Always appreciate uh, the professor hopping on with us. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.